0: Thank you all for joining us. Uh, This is probably the coldest Sunday morning on record for the bridge. I think it was 14 below on my way here this morning. And you guys are troopers. Thank you for being here. Okay, tomorrow the calendar turns to a new year. And for many people, uh, it's I don't know if you like to do New Year's resolutions. I don't like New Year's resolutions. But I like to start new things and to evaluate and set a few goals that I hope that are reasonable. But, you know, this is a time where, you know, we've gone through the holidays. We uh, maybe want to think about our nutrition plan. Do we need to eat a little bit healthier? Uh, At least try to get back to normal. Um, Maybe not tomorrow, but by January 2nd. Uh, you know, sometimes we like to um, kind of redo the finances, maybe say, decide we're going to save a little bit more, hopefully maybe if uh, we have debt that we want to reduce. Um, some people make plans to exercise more. Some people decide they want to read the Bible more or they want to pray more or that they want to be more generous in a new year. What about you? Will you have anything, any plans that are new, or any new goals? According to Newsweek magazine, Eric Wilson, a professor of Wake Forest University, set a goal that he wanted to become a happier person. Um, He tended to be a very melancholy person, and he was serious, and at times he was pessimistic, and a lot of his colleagues and friends were quite aware of that, and they were encouraging him to be a happier person. So um, he set out and purchased uh, several books on how to be a happier person. And he watched only uplifting movies, and he started saying things like, great and wonderful, and he and he just you know interspersed those in his conversations. And uh However, all of his attempts, he really couldn't change who he was and how he felt about life. After uh, investing all of this time in being a happy person, he decided to write a book, and he entitled it, Against Happiness. From his viewpoint, Americans are fixed on happiness and downplaying the value of depressive feelings, the blues, and sadness. Eric Wilson is what he calls the happiness movement, motivated by uh, scientific studies in the 1990s on the brain and the rise of positive psychology. Wilson found research that showed that being happier is not always better. Uh, those who know some discontent are often motivated to improve their lot in life as well as the condition of their community. Author and university professor Ed Diener, who wrote a book called Happiness, said, If, you've totally sa- if you are totally satisfied with your life and with how things are going in the world, you don't feel very motivated to work for change. He goes on to say, when experiencing a negative mood, you become more analytical, more critical, and more innovative. You need negative emotions, including sadness, to direct your thinking. I'm not sure we always think that way. The Bible talks much about pain and suffering as the normal part of life. In many places, the Bible demonstrates that pain and suffering and trials and difficulties bring growth. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the sun. He includes a time to be born and a time to die. He also includes a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. It was Jesus who said, blessed are those who mourn. 2017 brought death to a lot of families at the bridge. Loss of children, loss of a brother or sister or a parent, serious illnesses, cancer, surgeries. I don't know what 2018 will bring, but I don't think it's God's goal to make us happier this year Um, there is now there is 2018 to come and then there is the not yet and that's where we're going to find the ultimate life and joy and peace a long term happiness it's not yet in Luke chapter two, a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and we focused on this whole subject last week, the birth of Jesus Christ, and that was a great day of great joy. but there will be much pain coming, and that 's life and so I want us to turn to uh, Luke chapter two, and we 're going to look at verses uh, twenty one through fifty two this morning, so Hopefully, we will fly right through this. First, in verses 21 through 40, we're going to start with the baby Jesus. Luke records these events. They're not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. Um, Jesus is first going to be presented uh, for circumcision and later at the temple. So, Luke chapter 2. Let's look at verses 21 through 24. Luke chapter 2. And I am not in Luke chapter 2. That was the other Bible that I had Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And when the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed... Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So we have Jesus's public presentation. Verse 21, he's circumcised and he's given a name. It was on the eighth day that he was circumcised and it was on the eighth day was the custom to officially name the child and it was Joseph who was instructed as the husband to name the child which also uh, demonstrated his adoption of Jesus. Um, This says a lot about their parents, about the parents of Jesus on how they desired to follow the true and living God. And the instructions that God had given them. That they desired to live by faith. In verses 22 through 24, the purification and consecration. The purification was for Mary, not for Jesus. And the consecration was for Jesus. Verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses. Jesus was likely circumcised in Bethlehem. By a priest in Bethlehem. He was eight days old. Now Jesus is 40 days old, at least, because that's the time of purification for Mary. So there's a a change in time here and a change in location because now they will go to Jerusalem, four or five miles away, to the temple. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That would be for the consecration. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And he was taken to the temple and there would be an offering given for the firstborn male child, not for any other child, but for the firstborn male in recognition of God's uh, leadership in their lives. Every firstborn male consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice. This was for Mary, for her purification. And it was a pair of doves or two pigeons. And what that meant was, this was a poor family. Because that was the provision of a sacrifice for the poor. And that's what Mary and Joseph provided. So uh, one of the things that's important to understand as we see what's happening in the life of Jesus as a new baby is... Jesus lived under Old Testament times. Jesus lived according to the law of Moses. 613 commands, and we are not required to keep them all. This is a New Testament story. Luke is in the New Testament, but we are not under the new covenant yet until he dies, which brings in the new covenant age. Galatians 4.4, 4, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this. He says, But when, when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And the Apostle Paul is just reminding us of the perfect time in all of history. And that's worth another sermon. But the perfect time in all of history and how God orchestrated all the details to bring the birth of Jesus Christ. Born of a woman, God's son will be human and born under the law. So he's got to fulfill the law. He's got to live in accordance with the law, and he's going to do it without sin. In verses uh, uh, 25 through 38, we see public confirmation uh, by two different people, and God is going to confirm, especially to Mary and Joseph, who this son is, who this special child is. Uh, The first person is Simeon, and there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. So here's a man who was right with God, probably an older man. He lives in Jerusalem. He's probably got a well-known reputation, and um, he is devout. He's, He's highly committed in his walk with God. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. So here's a godly man. He's walking in the power of the Spirit. And he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's that? Well, he's waiting for the promised Messiah. He's waiting for the promise of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 is one of those passages. God is going to redeem his people. And uh, he's going to send Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the anointed one. Verse 26, it's been revealed, it was, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah or the Lord's Christ. So Simeon is the unique. God handpicked him. He wanted to confirm in Simeon's life, kind of a reward for, for Simeon's life. That Simeon. You are not going to die. You are not going to face physical death until you see with your own eyes the promised one, the Messiah. And so um, the confirmation is in verses 27 through 32. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. So God prompted, prompted him, the Holy Spirit prompted Simeon in Jerusalem to go to the temple right when Mary and Joseph are there right after the sacrifice of purification for Mary, right after the consecration of Jesus, and that the family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are in the temple courts. And that's when Simeon comes upon them. Um, When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required... Verse 28, Simeon took in his arms, took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, and so Simeon is going to speak here, or some believe that he sang, and this in uh, liturgical churches is called the Nuc De- De- Dementis, or Nunc Dementis, that's Latin terms for the first two words uh, in this section. In the liturgical churches, it's often sung by the pastor. That's why I am not in a liturgical church this day. Um, and here's, uh, here's what Simeon, verse 28. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. Simeon recognized God has fulfilled his promise. May you now dismiss your servant in peace. Uh, new or nunc, however you want to pronounce it. Dimittis is are two Latin words, and it means now dismiss. First two words, now dismiss. And Simeon is saying, God, my life is full. It is totally complete. You have shown me I am ready to go. I am ready to part. I'm ready to die. My life is filled to the fullest. And he goes on to say, you may now dismiss your, pers- your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And here's Simeon, an older man. He's holding this baby, and he's saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. This baby, God's son, is God's salvation. Simeon gets that, probably more right then than Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph know a lot, but there's a lot more that they're going to learn. And Simeon is just overjoyed, and he's ready to go to be with his maker. He says in verse 31, "...which you have prepared, your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel." Simeon brings in a clear focus, and this is something we see in in Luke over and over again. Jesus, God's salvation, is for all people. He's for all nations. He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for Israel. Jesus wasn't just for a chosen people named Israel. He came from that tribe. He came from that nation. God chose to send him through that family lineage. But Jesus is for all people. You know, Gentiles are non-Jewish peoples, and that's everybody who's not a Jewish person. That means you and me mostly here, I I would assume. And Jesus would be a light. He's the light of the world. And he's going to shine in darkness, and it's for all people. Prophecy in verses 33 through 35, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. You know, how would you like to be mom and dad? And this guy comes up at your child's dedication, just happens to be there, just happens to speak these words. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary. So he is going to focus on Mary at this point. And Uh, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. But what's Simeon saying? He's making a prophecy about the future. And he's saying this child is going to have a huge impact in the coming days. And he's going to separate people. There are going to be people who embrace what he says and what he stands for. And there are going to be people that are antagonistic about who he says he is and what he says he stands for. There'll be a falling and a rising, a separation of people. We could carry this thing through totally theologically. I don't know if that's the ultimate of 10. There's going to be a group who come to faith, and they're going to live eternally. And there's going to be a group who doesn't come to faith, and they are not going to live eternally. And one is going to rise, and one is going to fall, literally. And then this, he goes on to say, and and... To be a sight, this son, this Jesus, this promised one, will be spoken against. It will be a sign. Jesus will have enemies, and who would have expected it? So, here's Jesus the baby. At this point, they don't know all the future of Jesus. One day, Jesus' main enemies are going to be in this very building, the temple, the religious leaders of Israel, and they are the ones who vote to crucify Jesus Verse 35, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus will expose the thoughts of people. Jesus will expose the thoughts of men and women. And we see that as he interacts with people. And a sword, and he says to Mary, write to her directly, not to Joseph. And a sword will pierce your own souls too. A, A sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary, one day your heart is going to be totally broken. Mary, one day it's going to be the most painful day in all of your life. Mary, one day you're going to feel this as if it was physically happening to you. A lot of moms understand that when they think about their kids. When their kids hurt, they hurt. Mary you're going to go through tremendous pain and suffering because of your boy, because of this baby. And Mary will be at the foot of the cross, and she will watch her son be nailed, and she will watch her son die, and her heart will be totally broken. Joseph is not mentioned. This is, uh, the, in the very next section, this will be the last time, we're going to look at Jesus at age 12, it'll be the last time that Joseph appears, and, uh, the, and he doesn't appear during Jesus' adult ministry, and we assume that apparently uh, Joseph would have died, but he is not a part of this. And so uh, Joseph and Mary encounter a second person in verses 36 and 37, and her name is Anna. Uh, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughters of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. Now, please notice the details. Luke is an historian, and he likes details, and it helps, it helps us uh, pinpoint what 's going on. So Anna had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage that 's a lot of information. and then was a widow until she was 84. And uh, according to some um, scholars, it may be that Anna was actually, uh, depending how this is translated, because it's not perfectly clear, that it, what is clear is that Anna is an older person. Anna could have been a widow for 84 years, and therefore she may have been over 100 years old uh, when this takes place. It doesn't really make any difference. It says that she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. It's really possible and and plausible that Anna had a room at the temple, probably just a little small room. They let her sleep there. Or it may mean that when the place was open, she was pretty much there and pretty much was dedicated to full-time prayer in her latter years, which is a pretty amazing thing. Um, and then verse 38 comes the confirmation. Coming up to them. This is going to be like a great joy for Anna. Coming up to them at that very moment. The Holy Spirit directed her. Holy Spirit had directed Simeon. Holy Spirit directed her at this very moment, this uh, opportunity. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child who, to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There were always uh, people around who studied the scriptures and knew that God had a plan, and He was He was going to send a Savior. He was going to send a Redeemer. He was going to send a great leader. And Anna realized that this was Him. This was Jesus is the, is the one. He's the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, and so. Anna, just she just goes around and starts telling everybody. She's really instructing them about this baby. She gets it, and Mary and Joseph were just kind of like standing there, the young couple, and they learn this. In verses 39 through 40, we see his growth when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth so you know Mary and Joseph they want to follow the instructions God has given them and now they're going to return home I think we have a map of course and uh, just you know be reminded it's good just to keep as you uh, study the scriptures just to learn about the land and so that when cities and towns and rivers and the sea is mentioned you have an idea what they're talking about So Jerusalem is in the south. The body of water below Jerusalem is the Dead Sea. Bethlehem um, is only four or five miles from Jerusalem. And the trip back to Nazareth would be 70, 75 miles. Three-day journey. So Mary and Joseph head back. Jesus is now over 40 days old, and they return back to Nazareth, verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, these were his years in Nazareth where he grew up, um, this is, we're going to see, this is what is happening in the life of Jesus for the next 12 years, he grew and became strong, he was filled with wisdom and grace, and the grace of God was on him, he grew physically, in a, with normal develop, but he grew intellectually, he was exposed to the truth, he was exposed to scripture um, he he grew in knowledge and understanding and he grew spiritually and god 's favor was on him we, we don 't know there, there are apocryphal books that have stories of Jesus that are kind of silly because we don 't know a lot of, we don 't know really anything about the first twelve years other than what Luke tells us and now uh, We come to a event in verses 41 through 52, our last section, where Jesus is 12 years old. We see the custom in verses 41 and 42. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Again, this says something about the parents. And they had this high value. The the scripture instructs uh, men to go back to Jerusalem during the festivals. And people who live far away... Uh typically made it once a year, and the most important festival of the year was the Passover. It was eight days long. And um, Mary and Joseph were committed to this, and, and you have this sense that it was every year. Um, it, it was just a part of what they did. Think about it, it's a three-day journey down, or excuse me, from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Remember, it would be up because it's a higher elevation. And then it was eight days on site at the festival, and at least three days return. You've got to have a plan to do that. And they did that every year as a high priority, as a value for their family, living by faith. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And then we have a misunderstanding, verses 43 through 50. situation in verse 43 is this. After the festival was, was over, so the eight days have passed, they've been away from home 11 days, while the parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. That's a problem. Miscommunication, misunderstanding. The parents left town without their 12 year old by the way have you ever gone someplace where you thought your kids were with you or we've uh, gone home from church without our kids before didn't know it we've had our kids end up in other places and we didn't know it but you would think that they would have it all together here but something happened And as usual, uh, there are assumptions made, Uh, thinking he was in their company. So the the tradition was that typically people going to the Passover, there were main roads and they traveled together and they did it for safety, kind of a large caravan. It was also common for men uh, to travel in a group and women to travel in a group. Uh, thinking they were in their company, they traveled on for a day. So it's one-day journey. They don't have a clue that Jesus is not with them. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. And he wasn't with either one. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Day two. Now they've got to take a day trip back. Two days have have passed. Verses 46 through 38, we see the discovery. After three days, on the third day, they're back in Jerusalem, and they're searching, and they find him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Um. Verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he asked questions. He was dialoguing. He was curious. He wanted to know God's word. And he wanted to understand. And he wanted to know how God's word is applied in cases. And he asked questions. Not only that, um, they were asking him questions. And when he answered, they were amazed at his processing of the truth and how he understood scripture for a 12-year-old. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. This is not what they expected. This was not at all what they had planned. They have just lost three days. Three days of travel time. By now, they should be arriving back in Nazareth and getting back to work. Mary is a bit perturbed with Jesus. And mom's uh, parents, who wouldn't be a little perturbed, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. It, you know, you should know better. And um, verses 49 through 50 We get Jesus' explanation. He says, why are you searching for me? He asked. didn't you know? He has an assumption too. He expected them to know. He expected them to understand who he was. Something about his role was going to be different. He said, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Surely you understood that. This is probably a little hard for us to understand. But Jesus was getting it very early that God was his father and he had a role and he needed to be about his father's business. And there he is in the temple learning from people who can teach him God's word, where he can learn about his father's business, not Joseph's business. He's going to learn about that too. And he probably already knows a lot. But he has a higher calling to his father's business, and the Bible is clear that Jesus did not sin, and you know there we have it we want to no he surely he you know was he he wasn't rebellious, but this was an incident where an incident where it sort of came to a head that there are two paths, one is what mom and dad expected of their child, and there's a path where that's not the path Jesus is going to take. And eventually at age 30, he's going to separate from the family and the family business, and he's going to be totally focused on his heavenly father's business. Jesus assumed they would understand and Mary and Joseph were quite surprised. Verse 50, they did not understand what he was saying to them. That was a misunderstanding. They did not understand. I can't say I would have understood. You know, I would have, why aren't you with us? You know, we, this is what we do. At the end, we go home and we travel. This is where where we meet and where we go. Jesus was putting God's kingdom ahead of his parents at age 12. A surprise from a 12-year-old. Verses 51 and 52, we see the child's continued growth. They went down to Nazareth. See, they were up in Jerusalem. Now they're going down the elevation, which is north to Nazareth. He went with them and was obedient to them. Jesus wasn't rebellious. And uh, from age 12 now until age 30, he's going to be in Nazareth with his parents. He's going to be an obedient son. Obedience was never an issue, but there was a misunderstanding here. But his mother Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Mary kept a journal in her heart. She took notes on what was happening in the life of Jesus. She didn't understand it all. Joseph doesn't understand it all. Probably Mary understood more than Joseph. Joseph was probably about, okay, we got to make chairs, we're going to make furniture, we got to be here at this time, and yes, we're, we're going to obey God. Mary understood more, in my opinion, of the big picture of what was going on in Jesus' life. Verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus just continued to thrive as a human. He thrived intellectually, he thrived physically and emotionally, and he thrived spiritually. And God's favor was on him. He had a, his reputation, he had a good reputation in his community with man. What would that be? We don't know. Hard worker, probably. Honest, yes kind, yes, patient, yes, good reputation in his community, and he found favor with God. So let's talk about some lessons. I have five. First lesson is this. When parents follow God's instructions for raising kids, they put their child in a place of blessing. You see what uh, happened in Jesus' life. Mary and Joseph, they lived under the law. I'm very grateful I I don't have to live under the Old Testament law. And they were righteous people. They followed the true and living God with all their heart. And so if the Scriptures required them to be in Jerusalem at the temple, they were there. And in that whole process of following God... The Holy Spirit made connections into the life of Jesus. And there was Simeon and there was Anna. And actually God used that to confirm uh, what was happening uh, for Mary and Joseph. Even though Jesus probably wasn't old enough. And then he, uh, they take him... Every year is the custom back to the Passover. And Jesus finds himself around other godly people and other people very wise in the scripture. And he continues to learn and he continues to grow. And as we apply this to us, as we um, follow God's instructions and live by faith, we have the opportunity to put our kids in the place of blessing, where they're going to network, where they're going to meet other believers, where they're going to learn about the scriptures. Um, where they're going to learn to pray, where they're going to learn how God answers, where they're going to learn how to make wise decisions, uh, where they're going to learn how to choose a mate. There's so many things happen, mom and dad, when you are following Christ. And when you're disconnected and, and you're, you're not with the body of Christ, your kids are going to miss so many opportunities. And if you are faithful, you can expect God to be faithful. Second lesson, God will use your kids to help you grow as a follower of Christ. God used Jesus to stretch Mary and Joseph. And you already know if you're a parent that God will use your kids to stretch you because you probably need to be more patient and kinder. And uh, you probably need wisdom to raise your kids. You probably need wisdom on how to discipline them at times. You need wisdom from God on how you're going to answer questions that you can't come up with the answers on your own, how to guide them through some of the most important issues in life. And God is going to use your kids to stimulate your growth. And you're going to need to pray for your kids because you're not going to be with your kids 24-7 all of their lives. And you're going to need to pray for your kids. And you're going to see God answer. And your faith is going to grow. Third lesson: God uses people of all ages to represent him and to serve him. And God used the baby. God used a 12-year-old to serve him and to represent him. God used a couple of seniors named Simeon and Anna, who was somewhere between 84 and 104, probably. And God can use you. And God will use your children. Um, God can use your parents. Sometimes if you're a younger person, you don't always think your parents know. God uses them to help us to grow. God uses our grandparents to help us grow. I know that because I'm a grandparent. I'm helping all the time. Sometimes. Number four. uh, Misunderstandings do not have to be sinful. But they can lead to sin. Misunderstandings do not have to be sinful. There's so much we can learn here in relationships about this. Joseph and Mary and Jesus had a misunderstanding. You know, it's just easy to identify with the parents and say, yeah, I mean, they had expectations. This is what our family does. You, needed, you should have done this, you should have done this, you should have done this. Jesus had a different perspective. He wasn't evil about it. He wasn't rebelling. He had a different perspective, and he thought as a 12-year-old... And you know it's not he's uh, he did this without sin but it's not like he's thinking like a 45-year-old he's thinking like a 12-year-old because he still is a 12-year-old that's the mystery of of the incarnation of Jesus being God fully God and fully man and humanly there's this growth going on and so you have you have Jesus's perspective at age 12 like a 12-year-old and you have Mary and Joseph's perspective and you know what? They're both valid. And you have a misunderstanding. The intentions weren't evil, but there was a misunderstanding. It's what happens next that becomes a problem. Is it anger? Is it flying off the handle? Do you say things you regret? That's the problem. In, in uh, premarital counseling, we talk about this all the time. Conflict is normal because God made you differently. Male and female are very different. Um, And what I have learned in my own marriage, that's why I take so much time to share it in premarital counseling, that, you know what, Sue's perspective usually is different than mine, but it's usually valid because it's her experience, her opinion. She's not intending to be evil or rebellious. She just has a different view than I do and she's way more emotional than me and I have a a perspective and when I was young I thought it was just right but it's just different probably my perspective was valid probably her perspective is valid and we come at it with really a potential for uh, conflict and it's okay to have conflict it's just okay what next what how, how do you handle this we have two different perspectives and can we do it in a way It doesn't trash the other person. It doesn't power up or get angry. It doesn't create a win or lose situation because conflicts don't need to be won. They need to be resolved. And um, you can resolve it without hurting the other person. Uh, Misunderstandings do not have to be sinful. Number five, take time to reflect upon your life to see what God is doing in you and around you. We see this uh, several times in Luke's story of Mary, where things happened, and, and Mary, she pondered them in her heart. You know, she was writing in her journal, whether it was literally or just on her heart, and and she was processing, and she was thinking about Scripture and... She was thinking about this event. And then she just, over time, it just kept adding up. And she could see God at work in her son. And she could see the big picture uh, happening. Take time to reflect. Take time to reflect on what God is doing in your life. Think about 2017. What has God been doing this past year in your life? What areas has He challenged you to grow in? Did you grow? Um, what about your family? What about your kids? What is God doing in your child's life? Maybe small children, teenagers, adult children? What is God doing? Reflect. Think about it. Process it. What is God doing in your husband's life or your wife's life? Um, What would you like God to do in 2018? Probably should start with you before you start fixing other people. What would you like God to do in your life? And what? where should you start? The place to start is your most important relationship, that's your relationship with God. Talk to him about it. Ask him to guide you. Maybe today, or this week, sit down with God and make a list. You don't have to put 20 things on it. Maybe there are a couple of things. Be realistic. What is what will God, do to help you grow in 2018. Let's stand to pray. Father, I want to thank you uh, for the story in Luke today that reminds us of uh, what was happening in Jesus' life as a child. And thank you for his godly parents, Mary and Joseph who are more than just figures in a nativity scene. They were real people who had real concerns and fears and pain and sorrow. Father, uh, help us to be like Mary who reflected and um, who sought to find what you were doing in her life and in her world and in the life of her son. May we reflect May we learn from you. May we put you as number one in our lives to seek first the kingdom of God, just like Jesus did and his righteousness. And we can trust that all the things that you want to do in our life will happen. For Jesus' sake, amen.